0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. This is Postmortem, and I'm Mick Garris. I first met Roger Corman in the 1970s when I interviewed him for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Then again when I was doing my old Z Channel show, the Fantasy Film Festival. Even then, he was a legend, an inspiration, and to my surprise and delight, a very articulate man. He was overflowing with stories of film history but even more importantly, film present. New World Pictures was new then, and it was a very exciting time for a young film fan like me. These TV interviews can be reached at my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com, anytime, but they're a nice slice of cinema history. But time has not changed Roger Corman in the least. At 91, he still goes to the office every day, still makes movies, still is active and engaged, and excited by new prospects. A few years ago, Corman was a guest on my FearNet TV postmortem series, which later gave birth to this podcast. I love talking with him and I learn something new about him and about filmmaking every time. This podcast is a very unique episode. It was recorded with a live audience at the Overlook Film Festival at the Timberline Lodge in Oregon, where I presented him with the festival's annual Master of Horror Award. It's the fourth time Roger and I have had a conversation for public consumption and there were still plenty of new stories I'd never heard before. Roger Corman is a legend, but a legend who's still going strong after over 60 years of making movies. Our chat was in front of a standing room only audience, but it felt like an intimate conversation. You'll hear that for yourself. There's nobody like Roger Corman. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris and we are at the Overlook Film Festival at the Timberline Lodge and this is Postmortem. And our this is our first live with an audience uh, episode of Postmortem and what a great way to launch it with Roger Corman. You went to high school in Beverly Hills. Yes. You were a student of engineering at Stanford. Did you have a privileged childhood?
1: Uh. If you know Beverly Hills and not too many people know the organization, the more expensive houses are north of Sunset and then the medium houses are between Sunset and Wilshire and the sort of ordinary houses are south of Wilshire. So Beverly Hills may be an elite community, but I was in the lower end of an elite community.
0: That's still way above where I was. So, how does a student of engineering become the writer of Highway Dragnet? And how did the, the move into the film business happen?
1: Well. I was an engineering student and uh, I did graduate in engineering. My father was an engineer and I intended to follow in his footsteps, but I became very much interested in motion pictures and I found out that the critics, there were two film critics on the Stanford Daily. and that the film critics got free passes to all the theaters in Palo Alto. So I uh, wrote a sample review, they took me on. I became a film critic, and I started then to analyze the films more specifically than just being a spectator. I became more and more interested in that, and uh, I really realized that what I wanted to do was to make motion pictures. But by that time, it was a senior. And I thought, I just want to get the degree and get out of here. So I took the degree in engineering.
0: So you did complete the degree.
1: I I did complete the degree. But you never worked as an engineer. I worked four days (laughs) as an engineer. Uh, I tried to get... Very quick, like your movies. Right. I tried to get work in motion pictures and... uh, The studios dominated it at that time, and it was highly unionized, and I couldn't get a job anywhere. So I finally felt, okay, this isn't going to work out, and I got a job at U.S. Electrical Motors. And on I started on Monday. On Thursday, I went into the... Um, what we would call the Employee Relations Office, and I said, "Uh, this has been a major mistake. Uh, (laughs) I have to leave. And they said, Roger, you've only been here four days, why don't you work Friday, think about it over the weekend, and make a decision on Monday. And I said, no, I really cannot come back tomorrow. Uh, This is it. And uh, from there, I did launch a distinguished first job. I was a messenger at 20th Century Fox, riding a bike and delivering the mail and getting $32.50 a week. I was the failure of the Stanford engineering class of that year.
0: And they all wish they were where you are right now. So you work very left brain and right brain. Right brain. You're an extremely creative filmmaker. You created a lot of the the language of of the genre cinema that we have, and yet you're also a businessman. Do you think one side overrules the other, or do they work very well in concert for
1: you? I think they work well in concert and. Uh As a matter of fact, I was uh, having dinner one time in London with an English critic and he was saying, that he did not consider motion pictures to be an art form and I said I consider motion pictures to be the art form of, at that time, the 20th century for two reasons. One, motion pictures are the first art form to really represent movement. Everything has been static or on a stage until now. Plus. Motion pictures represent today's world in that they are a part art, part business. And this compromise within motion pictures makes them, I think, significant to the world in which we live.
0: Well, of all the things you've done in the motion picture business and outside, um, if you were to meet somebody who didn't know you or your work, what would you tell them you do?
1: I, uh, I would say... I make motion pictures, just that then, so that it doesn't sound pretentious, I, because I've been asked this a few times, I always add, I make low-budget motion pictures. Now, this is something I've never talked about before. I've never said that to a girl. Sometimes uh, I let the thing ride. <laughs> but my wife is here today, and I will say that was a long time ago. <laughs> the great Julie Corman.
0: So I've never talked about this before, even with you, but when we were doing Masters of Horror, I had written a script based on an unpublished Clive Barker story called Heckle's Tale. And I wrote it to be a Poe-type script for you to direct. You were 80 years old at the time, and I got word back. We never talked about it specifically, um, but you were very close to doing it, and Julie was very encouraging of you doing this for... uh, But what I got back was, you know, at 80, I don't think I want to be in a Vancouver graveyard at 4 (laughs) AM.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) So, but we were very close. The whole point was to do a Poe Corman style thing, but it would be a Barker Corman version.
1: So well, I like Clive Barker's work very much, and I remember that script. It was a very good script. Uh, I was extremely uh, busy working on a number of films at the time, and I would have done it other than uh, just the schedule, and the fact that uh, you think of directing as a somewhat glamorous uh, occupation, and it is, but it is also very difficult work. This is hard work, as you know, Mick, and uh, I felt with the schedule and the time that I had, I, I wasn't quite up to it.
0: Well, you quit directing with Roger Corman's Frankenstein Unbound for Fox. What was the nail in that coffin for you?
1: Well, I actually had quit earlier. I was doing a picture called Von Richthofen and Brown, a World War I flying picture in 1970 in Ireland, which is not a good country to shoot flying pictures, <laughs> flying airplanes in, but there were some World War I airplanes there that had been built for, I don't know the film, but a major studio film. And I remember I had an apartment in Dublin and we were working at uh, a small private airport outside of Dublin and every morning I would drive out to the airport and there was a fork in the road left to the airport right to Galway Bay. And every day I thought, I really want to go to Galway Bay and just sit on the bay. But every day I dutifully went to the airport, shot the film, and I'm pleased with the film, but I felt I've made too many films in too short a period of time. Uh, This will be a stop, at least for a year. I didn't intend to stop directing, but I thought I'm going to take the traditional sabbatical and take a year off. But I got bored during the year, and I started uh, New World as a production company, and uh, uh, The company became extremely successful, and I just never had the time to go back to directing. I was always thinking, pretty soon I will go back, but uh, I just didn't.
0: Way back in the 70s, when I interviewed you on the Z Channel, we talked about the formation of New World Pictures, and it was quite prescient the way you titled it New World Pictures rather than New World Films or New World Movies or Motion Pictures. And at that time you said, because the delivery was different, People were consuming movies in a different way. It would be on home video at at that time, Betamax and VHS. So here we are in this completely rearranged thing. You are still strong, making movies for completely new platforms. Tell me about that evolution.
1: Well, there's been an evolution, and that's why I picked the name New World Pictures rather than New World Films in 1970. I thought, I'm not certain how long we will be using it. Maybe this is the engineering background. I thought, uh, technology moves forward. I'm not certain that we will always be using film, So, but I thought we'll always be making fil- pictures, so it became New World Pictures, and... uh I just built built from there, essentially.
0: Well, let's talk about the last few years and how you have changed the, the, well, how distribution has changed. People are consuming movies on their phones. It's more about Netflix than going to movie theaters and, uh, you know, the different uh, platforms. Here you are, after 60 years, you're still right on top of all of that.
1: Well... I'm not certain I'm on top of it, and I'm not certain anybody is. It is changing so rapidly, uh, you can't really keep up with it. For instance, the last film I did, which was released, I think of motion picture theaters, but it was for Universal. It was uh, a remake or an update of my old film, Death Race 2000, which was Death Race 2050. And, uh, during, and it was to to be made for DVD and for Netflix. And I remember I was doing some uh, interviews uh, for publicity for the film, and uh, I said, well it's coming out next week on DVD, and after that it will be on Netflix. And there was a young publicity woman from Universal who said, Roger. It's coming out on Netflix the same day it's coming out on DVD. I thought this is uh, significant. It may not be that significant uh, to the public, but the fact that Netflix is so powerful that they bought the picture in advance from Universal and they were able to use their power to say we want to go out the same day that this goes on uh, goes out on DVD, and uh, I think this is an indication of part of the way uh, the industry is changing
0: well, uh, movies that you make have often been referred to as B movies, which we know is a misnomer because that means the second picture on a double feature, but from
1: the 1930s right
0: but What were considered B-movies, most of the audience here probably thinks of B-movies as lower-budget movies rather than as a second feature. But it has been said that the B-movies have become the A-movies. The genre films that would only play in the grindhouses in the 50s, 60s, 70s are now the same stories. They're remaking your movies with... 50, $100 million budgets, and they're the A-pictures now. What's what's your perception of how that has changed?
1: Well, uh, it started really with Jaws. Uh, Vincent Canby, the lead critic for the New York Times, wrote, what is Jaws but a big budget Roger Corman film? He was partially correct. It was a big budget Roger Corman film, but it was also a better film. And I remember when I saw Jaws, I thought, I and my contemporaries are in a little bit of trouble here. The majors have figured out what we 're doing, and just a year or so later, out came star wars and i I'd, I'd made several versions of uh, Jaws and several versions of Star Wars and I thought this could be the nail in our coffin. Luckily the nail didn't go all the way through. I don't want to push that metaphor too far, but at any rate Jaws and Star Wars were an indication that I and other uh, other of my contemporaries and friends, what we had been doing were now being done by the major studios, and I talked to Steven Spielberg and George Lucas about this, and they said these pictures from you and from uh, other people, uh, we saw when we were kids, now we're working for the majors, and we said we can do these as major studio pictures, and that has taken a large portion of our audience away.
0: Well, it, it's interesting that you showed, we showed X the Man with X ray Eyes here. It's my favorite of your films. And to the point that when I was working at Amazing Stories, I recommended it being remade to Steven Spielberg. And there was a time when Tim Burton was going to do a remake of this produced by Steven Spielberg. And damn it, it didn't happen. But maybe that's not a bad thing. What do you think of the movies that have been remade that you originated like? Little Shop of Horrors, uh, like Death Race, the Universal Death Race as opposed to the New Horizons Death Race.
1: Well, on Death Race, uh, Universal remade it. But they took out one essential element was that the drivers not only not tried to knock each other off the road and got points for doing it, they got points for killing pedestrians, which I thought was the key point to what success it may have had. What's and, the point uh,
0: without that?
1: Yes, right, the whole, the, the killing of the, you, you do not always have original ideas, but I think the idea of killing pedestrians for points was, uh, was original <laughs> on that point. So I was actually being interviewed by an Italian journalist, and what did, he said, what do you think about the fact that uh, The Hunger Games, Running Man, and a number of other pictures, after death, after death Race, took essentially the same story? And I said, well, I don't think there's any plagiarism. I think these ideas are sort of in the air, and I'm probably guilty of it myself. You take an idea, uh, the writer of The Hunger Games probably never saw a death race, but the ideas are sort of there, and unwittingly he wrote uh, a story very similar. And so on the basis of that I called Universal and told them what had happened and he had said, but none of them used the killing of the pedestrians. So Universal said, "Uh, well, why don't you remake it yourself and bring back the killing of the pedestrians, (laughs) which we did, which is, uh, I call it Death Race 2050, they call it Roger Corman's Death Race 2050, which means they have a little greater face in the name value of me than I do.
0: How would you define a Roger Corman picture?
1: Uh... Actually, nobody's ever asked me that question. I'm not certain. Uh, I'm Okay, you're a
0: reviewer at the Stanford paper. Okay. And you are writing about this esteemed filmmaker. How would you describe what he does?
1: I would say here is a filmmaker who worked primarily in low-budget films, and no matter what the subject was, he tried his best and he attempted sometimes with success, sometimes without success to bring something new in each picture to a genre in which the rules were somewhat established.
0: Fair enough. You're well known for working within tight budgets and what would you do with a fifty million dollar budget that could only be used for one film?
1: because my first thought was I might make a couple of pictures Uh, maybe 50 (laughs) what I would do I would spend more time in pre-production and with the writer. I am a strong, strong believer in pre-production on films and the full development of the script. Having been a writer, director, and producer, I'm aware of the uh, Nouvelle Vague, the new wave theories about the importance of the director, and I fully support that. But I think the work of the producer, and particularly the work of the writer, has been downgraded a little bit. I would spend more time and maybe more money finding a a, a specific writer to develop that, I would then, in casting, probably cast a little bit higher, and then in production, I would be able to build uh, uh, bigger sets and so forth, and particularly coming back to the film you saw tonight, uh, X, which was done in three weeks for a couple of hundred thousand dollars for the type of special effects that were available to us at that time i would if i were working with special effects i would be able to use computer graphics and the special effects that we have today uh, to make a, a grander film
0: so you don't believe in the O'Tour theory
1: I believe to a limited extent. When I was primarily a producer, I believed heavily in the auteur theory. <laughs> and now that I'm a produ- when I was a director, I mean. when Now that I'm a producer, uh, I want to emphasize a little bit the importance of the producer. <laughs> if I were a grip, I would say, you are forgetting the importance of a grip. <laughs> Especially the key grip. <laughs> the key grip is crucial. They don't call them key for nothing. Um,
0: you tend to go back to the genre, we'll say the genre, encompassing sci-fi, horror, suspense, thrillers. Um, is it because that the movie itself is the, is the marketing hook? You don't need movie stars You don't need uh, expensive special effects to do a horror movie. You just need a good idea and to be able to frighten an audience.
1: It's partially that. uh, That a horror movie or a science fiction picture um, will sell based upon the picture itself. So uh, you don't need a great deal of money to have a good idea. So therefore, if you can have a really good idea to start with it and develop it, you can make a successful horror or some types of science fiction pictures on a lower budget.
0: Well, back to the auteur theory. In the 70s, New World distributed films by Truffaut and other art house directors from around the world did that become less profitable and that's why you're no longer doing it? Because you were sort of a patron of the arts.
1: Well, what happened was I started New World and we were making, frankly, uh, exploitation films and we became startlingly successful. I I couldn't believe uh, how well it was going. And I'd always liked or loved the work of Bergman, Fellini, Truffaut, Kurosawa, and so forth. And I'd always felt that they did not get the proper distribution in the United States. The major studios who are great distributors, but they're great distributors in a certain kind of film and were distributing these films and not totally understanding it, the other distributors were very small companies that were really aficionados and did not have the power to book the theaters correctly. People book the pictures correctly into the theaters and demand the right terms. We had built ourselves into maybe the strongest independent distribution company at that time, and I felt we could do a better job than either of these two types. And Berkman, one of the reasons I started New World was that I had had, a dispute with American International over the profit participation on a couple of films. And I thought, I'm going to have my own company and not have to worry about this anymore. It turned out that Ingmar Bergman, as with many filmmakers, had a dispute with Svens Film Industry, which uh, financed and distributed his films. And he had an argument with them over the profit participation and he took a somewhat similar path than I did, but more specifically. He financed and with this. This can show how a great artist can also be a very intelligent businessman. He financed the film totally himself with no distribution and then he looked at, which is well known, sort of the pie chart of distribution around the world and was able to calculate on average what each country's share of the worldwide distribution would be. And he sent out the word that he would make a deal with the distributor in each country if they would give him that percentage back on the negative cost of the picture. So he would get his cost back immediately, and then he would split the profits 50-50 with the distributor. When I heard about this, I accepted the picture sight unseen and said, I will take this picture. He sent back that he accepted my offer, but I had to see the picture and I had the right to pull back. I was going to see the picture anyway, and needless to say, I didn't pull back. And we were able to give it. Uh, a strong distribution in art houses, and we went even a little bit beyond art houses. It ran
0: in drive-ins.
1: What happened (laughs) was this. This was really weird. What you do with that type of film, which could be called an auteur film or something today, was called art films there, you knew pretty much how you were going to distribute it. You opened it in New York and Los Angeles to get the reviews, and then you fanned out to the major cities and in the major cities you also went to university towns around because universities were uh, university towns were uh, a big part of the audience. For instance, if you opened in San Francisco, you would open in Berkeley and Palo Alto at the same time. So we followed this whole uh, routine during the summer, and uh, the picture was successful. Everybody was in profit. Ingmar, I call him Ingmar. I met him once. Uh, Ingmar was delighted. I was happy. And as fall came on, we knew from our exploitation films the value of drive-ins, and uh, the situation with drive-ins during the fall, the weather was starting to turn. The major studios did not want to put their pictures into drive-ins, and we were we put them uh, to a lesser extent into drive-ins. And I thought, we've got the prints, we've finished the distribution, why not put, Ing- why not put Ingmar Bergman's Academy Award winning, Foreign Academy Award winning Cries and Whispers in a drive-in? Everybody, it's great to make out to. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and people we uh, we got a lot of attention this is the only picture I'm aware of where everybody was overjoyed that we did average business (laughs) Uh, because the drive-ins were at a weak season and uh, the picture had finished its distribution so this was simply added money for us and for the drive-ins they got average business with it and Bergman wrote me a letter thanking me saying that that he had never expected that his audience would extend that far, and he was delighted that people who wouldn't ordinarily see his pictures had the chance to see the picture.
0: One of your most successful string of films was your Poe series, which led to H.P. Lovecraft as well. Um, Were you... uh, did you read Poe as a kid and Lovecraft, and w- were you drawn to the genre even before you worked in it?
1: Yes, very much so. I had read, actually in junior high school, The Fall of the House of Usher, and loved the short story. And so I asked for Christmas uh, for my parents, the, the complete works of Poe, and they were happy to give it to me. I could have asked for a shotgun or something. <laughs> and I, I read all of Poe's works, and when I got the chance to move up, from uh, a ten day black and white horror film To a 15-day color film, I chose uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. I didn't plan to do a series of Poe films. I just wanted to do The Fall of the House of Usher, but the film was successful. AIP asked me to do more. Vincent Vincent Price and I got along well together, and we ended up doing, I think, six of them, and uh, AIP wanted wanted us to do more, but I said, no, I I'm starting to repeat myself with the later films. It's time to move on to uh, something else.
0: Well, as you worked with a lot of uh, filmmakers who started out great and got greater, Jim Cameron and the other people I mentioned earlier, Joe Dante, Francis Coppola, Jonathan Demme, um, you did the same thing with writers, too. Richard Matheson and Ray Russell um, were people that you turned to, particularly during this period. Where did you come across them?
1: I had read uh, Ray Russell and Dick Matheson's work. Actually, they had a number of their stories, particularly Dick, in science fiction magazines and, weirdly enough, in Playboy. There were a number of others. John Sayles uh, I had read, and I think it was the best short stories of uh, one particular year. Bob Town was just a friend of mine and went on to be an Academy Award uh, winning screenwriter, so they came from a variety of sources. Right, so, um, as things have evolved... I should mention this, uh, particularly uh, at this time, Jonathan Demme, who died recently, was a very good friend of mine and was a writer and director and was one of the finest directors I've ever worked with. I think Jonathan's work will be remembered for a long time. I think he was a leader not only in uh, 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 the magnificent quality of his films, but that he was ahead of his day in dealing with racial and other cultural uh, situations and uh, was a pioneer in that area.
0: Best known here, of course, for Silence of the Lambs. Um, but a, a great filmmaker and, from all accounts, a really terrific human being.
1: Oh, I forgot. Uh, as a matter of fact, two great filmmakers together in one drive-in. <laughs> uh, Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers with John's and Demi's Caged Heat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So well, let's talk about Kate Heat and, and you went through a period of time where a lot of the films were done, women in prison on tropical islands, you worked the Philippines and, and did you go wherever the money would stretch the furthest, is that the philosophy?
1: It was partially that. Uh, The Philippines were uh, were and are an inexpensive uh, country to work in, and English is the dominant language, so you don't have a language barrier. And the locations with the jungles, the ocean, and so forth gave us great great backgrounds.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the evolution. You talked about uh, the man with X-ray eyes and the special effects being limited and how how it would change now. But you're making pictures now with lots of computer-generated graphics. So tell tell me about how it worked for you, the, the, the evolution from
1: practical effects to digital effects. Well, I could point specifically to X, because it's been suggested that this might be a film to remake. And I'm thinking about doing it for exactly that reason. We were so limited in the special effects and we worked so hard with the limited resources we have, and this is a picture specifically that could be improved with today's use of computer graphics. We had another trip picture, the trip, which was about an LSD experience. We did the best we could uh, with the uh facilities and the technical ability at the time but a number of these films you look at today and you forget that those those special effects were completely acceptable they were state of the art in 1960 or so and today they I know they look primitive time moves on and I would have no intention of remaking the trip but uh X would would be one of the films that would benefit from uh, the newer uh, techniques of computer graphics, green screen, and so forth.
0: Well, story trumps all, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. and movies are made for their moment, not for the future. Yes. And to have this amazing catalog of films and achievements you've had that everyone here appreciates going back to the 50s is quite an accomplishment and, and certainly worthy a giant axe. So, oh, yeah. uh, but we just have a couple minutes, and I want to take some questions from the audience. But first, I would just like to ask, what was the best experience with an audience that you had from one of your films in its initial release? actually walking into a theater
1: i wouldn't say this was the best experience but it was a learning experience it was one of the poe films and i'd set up a sequence a horror sequence and the key to a horror sequence is not really the moment of horror it is as nick knows who's done some brilliant horror films it is the build-up to that moment, the building up within the audience of mounting suspense and apprehension, and then wham, you hit at the moment and the audience screams. That worked exactly in one of, I've forgotten which of it was, and the audience screamed at exactly the moment I wanted them to, and I thought, well, that really worked. And then there was a little bit of laughter afterwards, and I thought, what did I do wrong, and I thought, (laughs) I didn't do anything wrong. That was laughter of sort of the audience understanding what had happened and of laughter of appreciation and partially at themselves because they'd been drawn into this. And that led me to make first The Bucket of Blood and then Little Shop of Horrors in which I combined comedy and horror specifically because I got that laugh after the
0: yeah, it's a laughter of glee as well. OK, let's take a couple of questions before we have to wrap it up right here. Uh, you touched First of all, thank you very much for being here and, and coming to The Overlook. Uh, you touched uh, upon the changes in distribution over the years. What do you feel that uh, the distributors of today can learn from the way discri- films were distributed back in your era, back in the New World era? Um.
1: I don't know if they will learn this, and I'm not certain that it's necessary, they do. But in the New World area, independent films, uh, providing they had some merit, could play opposite major studio pictures and do well. Today, motion picture theaters are... Over ninety percent major studio pictures with very little room for an independent or an independent uh, low budget film, a few do get through, for instance, a strangely enough, horror is one of the few genres that does break through occasionally in the theaters and I think the major uh, uh, the major studios should be aware that every picture does not have to be a $200,000 special effects film. There is room for these low budget pictures that offer an individual viewpoint. As a matter of fact, I think that thought is starting to grow. We're seeing a few more low budget pictures break into theaters, and I don't think this is going to be a major movement, but we may see a little more emphasis on independent films.
0: One more question. Anybody? Ah, right here. Hi. Uh, so, I think one of, the, one of the really great things about you, there's so many, um, is the fact that you inspired and helped uh, open up careers to so many
1: people. Um, you know,
0: what was the talking about? When you when you see something in somebody, what is how do you decide that you want to
1: mention them? Is it an active process? It is an active process, and uh, there are probably three things I look for. Uh, the first is intelligence. Um, you might have one or maybe two successful films and not be too bright, but the ones who uh, have had long successful careers are all intelligent. The other is the willingness to work hard. As I have said, I think earlier, motion pictures might be a glamorous uh, way of, to spend your life, but it is very, very hard work. So you have to be intelligent, and you have to be able to work long, hard hours. Those two things are not that difficult to sense in a person. The third is the creativity. Uh, This is difficult to sense. Having started as a writer, having been a writer, a director, and a producer, I think... I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of knowledge in each and judge a little bit more than others, but also, since I was making a series of films, I could have somebody like Francis Coppola start out with me as an editor, move up to be a second unit director, and then continue on to be a director in which, in each level, they showed the creativity that indicated they could move on to a higher level.
0: The cameraman on the man with x-ray eyes was Floyd Crosby. Could you tell us how you came to work with him?
1: Well, Actually, I think the cameraman was Archie. Yes, he was Floyd Crosby. That's right. Uh, uh, Floyd uh, was a victim of the the red scare in Hollywood uh, in the early 1950s and the blacklist. Floyd was not fully blacklisted. For one thing, he'd been a decorated combat photographer during World War II, and it was very difficult for them to say that he was unpatriotic. So he was in a gray area where he would work with directors, for instance, I think Floyd directed High, or was uh, a cameraman on High Noon. He would do a major studio picture because the director or the producer insisted upon him. But then he would have time when nobody was pushing him and so forth. And I was fortunate enough to work with him. And we worked on many films together. And... Uh, I was, because of the blacklist, I had the opportunity to work with really a brilliant cameraman who was unfortunate enough to be caught somewhat in, uh, in the uh, Red Scare tra- trap.
0: Well, we're out of time, so thank you to cinema icon and gentleman, Roger Corman. Thank you. You're listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. I'd like to thank the Overbook Film Festival and the Timberline Lodge in Oregon for helping us with the live podcast with Roger Corman, live and in concert just for us. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.